I mean, in a way, chemistry, I guess it's like magic. It's like you're able to manipulate and change things. I mean, you think of these atoms and they're reorganizing and it's just that curiosity, I guess, in terms of why that's so and how that's so. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on business and creativity, entrepreneurship and leadership, failure and growth, and so much more. Mary Mason is one of those innovators that you never really hear about. The ones who affect our lives each and every day, but do it without us even knowing. Mary is the chief chemist at Millican. And if you've heard that name before, you're probably thinking carpets or rugs or flooring coverings right now. While the company's work in that industry is impressive, what you probably don't know is that Millican is a global multi-market company facilitating research design and manufacturing on products from protective safety equipment and cleats to coloring agents and groundbreaking other technologies. They've been bringing innovations to market since 1865, and they claim over 5,000 patents. Mary has contributed in some small and large ways to many of the products that you and I interact with every day. And perhaps you're wearing, sitting, or standing on something they've innovated right now. Hi, my name is Mary Mason. I am a principal scientist for Millican and Company and I work in the chemical division. Where are we today? What room is this? This is our innovation gallery and the innovation gallery of course is um, located at the Roger Millican Center. It's known as RMC for short. Um, this is basically where you can see that we've displayed, I guess, a lot of the, the innovations that Millikan partakes in. A lot of our research labs are here, as well as a lot of the, uh, the sales people are here. Uh, we have environmental regulatory here. We have uh, analytical labs here as well. Um, so a lot of the offices, a lot of the research happens here. So a lot of times, you know, I may say to a friend or a family member that I work for Millican, but they've never heard of Millican. But they've touched so many of the Millican products and they really don't come to realize that. But when my aunt came here and she saw all the things that you might go to the store and buy, and she says, wow, you guys play a role in that. The average person touches about 50 Millican products a day. If you've taken a trip somewhere using an airline, you're coming into contact with the Millican product. When you're getting to your car, you're, you're touching Millican fabric. When you go to sleep in your bed, actually, you're touching a product that Millican actually has, has, has actually played a role in terms of making. All right, Joseph, we have a little bit of rapid fire word association. Uh, as Mary just said, they have like, they, they think people interact, interact with like 50 Millican products on a daily basis. So mm -hmm. I've got a short list here okay. of things that they're involved with. Okay. And you're going to have to try and guess what it is. I'm ready. All right. You have these all over your office. They're colorful. Legos. Uh, yes. Okay. Next one. Uh, 
you hopefully use this at least once a week when you're washing something. Uh, you put these inside a machine. Detergent? Keep going. Soap. Uh, but they're like little square things. Detergent pellets. Uh, a different P word. Pills. Whoa, uh, what no, kind of machine are no, 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 you? No, no, I don't know. What, what am I cleaning? Uh, we're skipping it. Uh, okay. Okay. This uh, is something that inflates. It's a safety Egos. device. Oh, God. Uh, it's, it's a safety device. Uh, airbag. Yes. Next product. You're going to find this on the side of every football field. Drunken fans. <laughs> Uh, helps hold limbs in place. Stre uh, uh, not a stretcher, a uh, the thing that holds your arm. Yes, like a uh, uh, stent. Stent, not no. no. Okay, so second word. It's on your office desk, probably. It's sticky. Tape. Yes, first word. Safety tape. Uh, what is football? Tape. Oh, like uh, band aids or what is <laughs> what is what football's not a band aid? <laughs> what is football? <laughs> What is what is football? Sports it's, it's, tape. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yes. Okay. Nineties pop song. I don't want no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that didn't work at all. I'm not gonna deliver that well at all. Uh, okay, so to make this one easier, uh, doctors and nurses wear these, especially right now, all the time. Masks. Yes. Gloves. But, but on their body. Uh. What do they wear every day? What's a what's Scrubs. a doctor's uniform? Thank you. Uh, last one, three words. This is our, this is our challenge word here. Okay. okay. Uh, Mary actually talks about this as a hobby of hers. She does this on a wheel. She does this on a wheel. Oh, pottery. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. First word. Clay. Pot. pot. Pottery. Pottery. First okay. word. Okay. Second word. Keep your horse in a stable. Another word for stable. Barn. Okay. Put the first two words together. Pottery barn. Okay. Last word. Couch. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So you can you can probably tell milk and I mean they've got a long history of so much innovation and invention, you know we touch so much of their stuff on a daily basis. But there's one in particular that Mary's, uh, you know, division really led and and we didn't even use it as one of our words, but the marker. Um, oh, you mean like the just the classic coloring marker pen? No, not even the classic, the like washable the wa marker. Oh gosh, I know those quite well. Yeah, they those are saving my. Saving my life right now because I've got two boys and they're, as you know, they're just uh, rambunctious. They want to color everything. So she made, what did she do? She made, she helped formulate the washable part of this. Yeah. So the actual coloring agent that's inside the marker, uh, you know, her team, you know, created that chemical compound that allows it to, you know, when your boys have gone after your walls, yeah. you can scrub it off. Um, I think what's actually even more interesting about it is, you know, we were filming in their big innovation center, right? So this big area where they showcase, you know, some of their most important or prominent, significant things from Milliken. And this had its own little stand, like all, you know, it wasn't just part of the big wall, it was part of the center of the room and you could go up to it and actually interact and watch how this stuff actually works. And I think it just speaks to the volume of, of Mary and her work there at Milliken. Yeah, I, I can't, it, it, to, she and you know what's interesting about her is that she's so modest about it you know if you think about it at any time she walks into a store a grocery store whatever she, she her work is on display yeah um and yet she's so humble about 
about that influence on society and culture. It's really cool. I also like to think that she probably snuck in the purple marker. So that's like her favorite color. Ooh, that's probably good. Yeah. You got some good data on that one. Yeah. yeah. This is such a significant, albeit specific position to hold at a global company. So we wanted to know what initially led Mary down this path. So I've been at Milliken for 20 years. I came here as a result of a postdoc that was in our group at NC State. Uh, actually uh, have a PhD degree from NC State in fiber and polymer science. Uh, we were both there at the same time. When he finished up his postdoc, he came here to NC State. When I was trying to finish up my PhD at the same time, I started teaching at uh, Wake Technical Community College there in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then uh, at some point in time, he wanted to go back, I guess, to NC State. So that left a, a vacancy here at Milliken, and he told me about it, and I applied, and that's how I came here. Now, how I decided to become a textile chemistry major at that time is a, a very interesting story. I just love to sew, and I also love fashion designing as well. So when it came time to choose a major uh, for, I guess, what I wanted to pursue a, as a career, I said to my aunt, hey, I would like to maybe pursue fashion designing. Uh, she's a very strict lady, and she basically said, no, she's not going to support that. Today, I can understand why she would say that, basically, because it's a very competitive field. And if you want to, I guess, pursue something, I guess, and you want to make sure that you can make a living at it, you want to do something that's a little bit more practical. And in seventh and eighth grade, I, I do remember a science teacher of mine told me that I was uh, pretty good in science. Uh, so just that memory from what someone else told me before and uh, the fact that this was a textile school, I said, well, I'll just give textile chemistry a try. And actually it worked out well for me. I remember <laughs> back in, in college, I would do very well in, in calculus. So if I can take a formula and apply it, that's something that, that works very well for me. So I love calculus. The chemistry, chemistry is a very difficult subject because it's something I guess that, you know, molecules you can't put your hand on. Um, so, you know, as part of a, a textile a chemistry curriculum, of course, you take the math as well as the sciences. General chemistry wasn't too bad. Organic chemistry is pretty tough. I mean, usually, you know, if you're taking organic chemistry, it's not uncommon for your professor to grade on a curve. For some odd reason, I liked it, particularly the, the laboratory portion, I guess, of the, the um, chemistry classes. Have you had the chance here at Milliken to to, to create fabric then, or to impact fabric in a way that, that has impacted fashion? I haven't really gone back, I guess, and pursued anything related to the fabric part of it, but the dyeing part, I, I do that all day, all day, every day. The washable marker. The science is dense behind something so simple. We thought it was the perfect example for Mary's work. So our, our main core competency in the, in the case of the colorant area is polymeric colorants. Um, so it's a, a special type of colorant that uh, brings value to those that use it. Um, our materials tend to be, or colors tend to be non-staining. So for example, if you go to buy a, some Crayola markers, Crayola markers of course are used by children. Children of course like to take those markers and mark on fabric, mark on walls, mark on themselves. Um, but the technology that has been developed here at Milliken as a whole 
um, allows that to be washable. So therefore, we're not going to mess up an expensive chair or a wall um, or, or yourself. So the washable marker technology, I guess, is basically born out of an original creation, I think that happened back in the 60s, that kind of is tied to textiles. So if someone is going to weave fabric, whether it's nylon or polyester, all that color basically looks the same. But in order for you to identify one bolt of fabric from another, uh, color is a, a nice sensory cue to help you try to identify what's what. Um, so the technology, I guess, that originally started off with the polymeric colorant technology uh, is the product line called Versatent. So with Versatent, we're taking out a color that's really large and we're preventing that from penetrating into the fabric or the fiber so that when you go ahead and you take that bolt of fabric later on and you want to clean it, wash it, scour it, that color is going to go away. So from that initial technology and thought went from Versatent, mainly uh, different areas, one of which is Reactant. So when I first came to Milliken, that was the first product line that I worked on then and actually still support it today. So with our reactant colorant technology, same principle, uh, we have a polymer chain that's built on to a molecule, but we take advantage of a different part of that molecule and the fact that it is reactive. So when we go to make, uh, and this uh, reactants are used in polyurethane, when we go to make a polyurethane foam, that color is actually reacted in, so it doesn't extract out. So we're taking a principle, an initial concept, and we're tailoring it to different applications by making small changes. How do you then go and see the business opportunities with that basic breakthrough? There could be a need that is expressed to us by a customer, and then therefore we would take that information and make up some prototypes in the lab and do some testing. Or just through reading the literature, we may say, hey, this might be a good place to create value. So therefore, we might go to the lab and make a new molecule and then see if we could sell that to someone. How do you as a company do that? It, it's a business decision and it actually can come from either direction. Either a scientist can say, I have an idea. Now, before I guess the business will accept that idea, you have to build a proof of concept, you have to test it. And then you have to say, hey, you know, by developing this product, by investing, I guess, in its development, scale up registration to sell it, we can make X number of dollars from it. So as a result, from doing, I guess, that initial discovery and then making a business case, then the business would say, yes, this is a place where we might want to try to play. We've grown now from just focusing on colors to now broadening our scope in different areas. So in many ways, the consumer benefits that we have seen for decades, mm -hmm. the basic signs for that, it's coming from Millikan. Yes. You know, when we synthesize a color, a particular color may have different characteristics. Of course, the main characteristic is the color, but it may not particularly be light fast in a particular situation, for example, in an automobile. So therefore, you may have to add other additives to increase its performance in that application. Okay, I get you. So like a leather, mm -hmm. to stop it from fading. Mm -hmm. Or like mm -hmm. a, a outdoor rug to yes. keep it waterproof. Yes. I don't really create, I guess, these new molecules, but 
it's one thing to make a new molecule, but it's always a good thing to have a better process to make it. So that's probably more of the area in which I play. So I work a lot with manufacturing um, in terms of the scale up of molecules. Uh, when you take it from the lab to the plant, it's not a linear scale. A lot of things that work well in the lab do not work so well at the plant. So therefore you have to go back and understand why things are the way they are and then make changes. Do you spend a lot of time in the field as a result of that? Well, my field I would say is more so the manufacturing. Yep. Yeah, so I, I go to the plant a lot. My telephone is supposed to be available 24 seven because that's when the plant operates. So uh, if they're having a problem, we've got to get beyond that, that point. Um, so it's not unusual to, to get phone calls and to, to try to troubleshoot issues. I, I am stoked that we got to sit down with someone from Milliken, not just a somebody, it was Mary, you know, they're, they're, they're principal chemist. And mainly, you know, when I think about Milliken, it's, it, they're one of my, my beaming children of what I hope we have more of here in the state, which is not only a booming and growing manufacturing operation, that's great, but that they do the majority of their R&D and all their actual innovation and creation of their products right there on their campus. And it's, you know, how do we, that's the question I'm asking all the time is how do we become a state that we can both create and build all in one place and showcasing that for the whole world to know that, that you can do that here in the Palmetto State. We are honored to have our podcast, Of Note, recognized with a 2020 Webby Honoree Award for our debut season. The Webby Awards is the leading international award honoring excellence on the internet. Awarded by the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, it's the internet's highest honor. You can help us continue to grow the podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing with your friends and colleagues. By this point, you probably have a good understanding of Mary's day-to-day, -day, her roles and responsibilities, and the kind of work that happens at Millican day in and day out. Having spent 20 years at the company, we wanted to know what, if anything, had changed. I do see a lot of changes going on now within Millican for the 20 years that I have been here. Um, I think our, our population actually is becoming more diverse. Uh, we're hiring a lot of associates with different ways of thinking. Um, I think we're going to continue in that path uh, for the many years to come. Milliken has been recognized for many years as one of the most ethical companies in the world. We've won that, that particular award now for 13 years in total. So we're not really concerned necessarily also about the business itself, but how we conduct the business. How do you, as a leader in this company, sustain that culture? Not only am I a chemist, but I, I wear many different hats as well, uh, one of which is regulatory. Uh, so whenever we, I guess, uh, make a new molecule, we have the, uh, we have to register it, I guess, in order to be able to actually manufacture it, but also to sell it in different countries. If we know that we've done something wrong, or if we find out later on that a mistake particularly was made, we have no problem turning ourselves in to make sure that we correct that particular mistake. Mistakes happen, unfortunately, all the time. But, you know, it, it takes a special company to recognize when a mistake has been made and we want to do the right thing to correct it. 
After about an hour of talking about history, chemistry, textiles, and future opportunities, we still wanted to ask Mary about her experiences as not just a leader, but a leading woman in her field, and what that means to her, as well as what lessons she's learned throughout her career. One of the key learnings that I had, I guess, about something that didn't go as well as anticipated or expected, I, my learning from that is communication is really key, and communication actually is a two-way street. I mean, when you're, I guess, leading a particular uh, area or group of people, you may get up, I guess, and convey a particular message, but you need to go back and make sure that that message was heard the way it was intended for you to hear it or for you to convey it. Two-way communication helps in terms of making a particular process or endeavor to be extremely successful. How, how do you do that? How do you make sure that what you said to someone is what you wanted them to hear? Maybe even just going back to those individual key people and saying, hey, you know, this is what was mentioned, I guess, or this is a particular problem that we need to overcome. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Or what did you hear? What message, what was the take home message that you received um, from the information that was given? So Mary has really gone into detail of sharing, you know, Milliken's culture and approach to ethics. And I don't even think commitment's a strong enough word for, for everything that they offer and, and how they've outlined it and probably continue to revisit how to be the most ethical company in, in the world. But not only that, they they have a really longstanding history of actually, as it relates to, to sustainability, before it was popular or, or top of mind. Um, in fact, in 1901, they published their first recycling policy. Uh, 1901. 1901. So again, like I said, way before this was in mainstream media. Um, by 1912, they actually began investing in renewable energy. Like, who knows if that was even a word back then? Renewable energy. Um, all the way to you know, flash forward, you know, about 20 years they're actually changing, completely revolutionizing the way manufacturing facilities are set up. They've, they've transitioned away from facilities with big windows. They've now added AC, even fluorescent lighting. And it, it, I mean, if you look at any uh, manufacturing facility to this day, that's still the blueprint that we use. Are these closed environments like that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when we walked on the campus, you could see everywhere the pride that they have from from the you know from from what from the accolades and the recognition that they've that they've won you know if you remember lining all of their campus roadways were signs that said they were one of the most ethical companies in the world uh and what's interesting i think about that is is i think it just just like anything else they seem to be at the forefront and have been at the forefront for looks like over 100 years um of well, understanding the value of company values. And even going back to the environmental piece, I mean, their facility that they sit in today is at an arboretum, correct? Is that, I mean, these big, beautiful trees. Oh, yeah, the and campus they, itself. Yeah, the campus itself. And it, it's it's a public park that people can, can run on and enjoy as part of the community. Um, but just as like a, another way to maybe, I feel like every time we talk about recycling, it's always about, you know, it's good for Earth, which, which right. it is. Let's not take away from that. But um, we actually have an entire uh, recycling market development team within commerce, and, and it is their job, you know, to think about every day 
how do we actually make a market for these stuff that we're recycling? What do we help? How do we help like a Millican get their their by waste out and actually in a recycling facility for for so it can be reused? Um, so they would say, you know, about seventy percent of our bottles go unrecycled. Um, but if if we just uh, this, this this is such a low threshold. If we just if every household recycled two more bottles each week, it would create three hundred new local jobs. Wow! So we it's a, like I said we always I feel like we we focus so much on you know it's good for planet Earth that we recycle, but at the same time there's a big job initiative and a whole market domain as it relates to recycling. Yeah, you know, what's I think it's interesting for those listening to be it a, if you're just starting out or even a small company, probably something I would note from Millikan's story is that they started with these values. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's, I think sometimes maybe a lot of entrepreneurs will look at this like, oh, great, you know, if we grow, we scale up to a size one day where we have the time and resources to sort of invest in uh, ESG, right, environmental, social, and corporate governance where, um, you know, we're, we're looking at our values and seeing how we can, to your point, create models around them or um, attribute resources to them, we'll, we'll address these things. But Millikan addressed these to start with. Mm-hmm. It seems like they baked into their origin and the way they conducted business um, ways of looking at things so that they held true to their commitments and their ethics and their values. And so I just think it's, a, it's such an interesting thing to see that while they are a massive multinational corporation now, th- this commitment did not start 20 or 30 years ago. It didn't start when they had... Uh, massive amount of resources or to mandates throw at from it. government. Exactly, it started way past, way before that day one with their founder, um, and I think that's a that's such a wonderful uh, maybe nugget to take away from this story uh, for you entrepreneurs out there, which is to say, uh, in addition to whatever problems you're looking to solve um, or value that you're bringing to a marketplace, that you should look at the values for how you conduct your business and see how you can be innovative there, right? Yeah, Millican, how- yeah, Millican is using innovation to achieve their commitments. And they're sustaining that over, you know, 150 years in business. Yeah, I mean, they, wow. s- they see that as the opportunity as well, as just addressing a market need. Yes. I think it's an educational experience, not only for me as a woman, but also for males as well. For me, I think I have become more of a calculated risk taker. I don't want to take a risk such as trying to blow up my laboratory. Um, But, you know, you have to do things. And if you want to do things and do new things, you really do have to think about what are the consequences? What is involved from a safety perspective? And then plan for maybe those mishaps that may occur. For me as a woman, I would say uh, becoming more of a risk taker is something that I've gained, I guess, from my interaction with men. In terms of men, you know, if you think about uh, women, women are great multitaskers, all right? They have a home that they need to take care of, children, and a job as well. So they have to juggle all of these things. So they have to be really good in terms of organizational skills. And I think that a lot of men, I guess, are can pick up, I guess, some of those values and, and uh, attributes, I guess, from their interactions. I detect from you this person who believes that you need to put in 10,000 hours to achieve something. And is practice important? It is very important. When you fail at something, 
I mean, it may knock you down for a moment, but you really have to get back up. So a lot of times when experiments don't go as planned, I allow them to try to understand what may have gone wrong. And I think that serves as a teaching opportunity to allow them to kind of think and maybe even be innovative in their own way. The answer is sometimes not immediate. So sometimes I have to just step away. And then once you step away, come back to it. And sometimes it's like clear as, as day. I found it interesting that you have an interest in pottery. Is that a decompression thing for you or does it help you think through a problem? It's a decompression mostly for me. Um, I just love to take a piece of clay that has no shape at all. Um, I do wheel work um, and that in the very beginning was very, very, very tough to do. Um, and a lot like chemistry, when you go to the lab and you do things, you do experiments, you're not always successful. Same way, I guess, with learning to throw on that wheel. It took a lot of tries. Although I had a, an instructor in a class and he tried to in, instruct and, and try to help you, guide you in terms of becoming a better potter. But you have to do work outside of that. And so I looked at a lot of YouTube videos and I just sat at home and practiced and practiced and practiced. Um, but just taking a piece of clay that has no shape and just molding it into something that's beautiful, I guess, brings me joy. One of the things that I remember from my pottery instructor was do not fall in love with a piece of pottery until it is glazed, fired, and finished. You throw a piece of pottery on the wheel, let it dry, it can get a crack. So therefore you have to start all over again. If it happens to survive that first step, you glaze it, you have different interactions with the glazes. If you mix glazes, you have different interactions between those two particular glazes. There's the uh, firing itself. You have time and temperature variables that don't always work as planned. Same thing in the lab. You just have to basically get up, start it over again. That insight isn't just applicable to those in science, but to all of us really. And while that stands as a great motivator in the face of failure, we wondered what else kept Mary going in her work every day. Coming to work for me is, is fun. One thing I, I like to say about myself is I, I want to be a person that people depend on. I want to be dependable. It bothers me, I guess, when if someone is asking me to do something that I can't do it for them. So just that ability to accomplish something uh, gives me internal satisfaction. For someone who's looking to get into material science, science in general, what's some pieces of advice you'd give that person? You want to ask yourself why you're doing it, number one, and then look inward and see what are your skills in terms of becoming a scientist. And maybe if you don't know yourself that well, you could ask others. Like I remember that a middle school teacher who said to me that I was good in science. Um, so. And then investigate. If you can intern somewhere, go there and get the experience to try to see what it's really like. And don't be afraid of failure. And finally, as what we might even call a silent innovator, we wanted to know how Mary would define innovation. I think of innovation as a process. There's usually a need that needs to be fulfilled. So there's a need that's identified that we want to pursue. You have to make connections. 
Uh, so you have to know something about that particular area and then maybe know something about different areas where you can take this new information and allow that new information to help you create, I guess, or solve a particular problem. But you also have to make sure that you win with that particular product or new process that you're coming up with. So there has to be an intended audience that also views it as an uh, innovation as well. There's gotta be some practical use. Yeah, some practical use or application for the, for the work that's being done. What, what's in the future for you and for Milliken? Well, the world is changing. I mean, you hear things on the news, uh, you know, raw materials in terms of availability, uh, things that may have been available in, in one particular location, it's no longer available due to maybe environmental issues or other issues going on. Um, so how do you sustain, I guess, a particular product or process when you have these outside forces that you have to contend with. Um, tariffs, I guess, are going up as well. Um, nobody wants to pay more money, I guess, for something they've been buying for a long time. So basically, how do you offer to your public that same material at that same cost? There's also changes in terms of environmental regulations, regulatory requirements. And then, you know, Milliken strives itself on being innovative and take our innovations and we patent them. But patents do not last forever. So therefore you have to reinvent yourself every so often in order to still keep that competitive advantage. My name is Mary Mason. Those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nother. And I'm Laura Quarter. This is an original production by the South Carolina Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster, with additional editing support from Mariah Reed. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matthew Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at scribblesc. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Of Note. So a lot of times I get asked, why do composites matter? And, um, you know, for the engineers out there, engineers love composites um, because it has a, a really high strength to weight ratio. Uh, and that makes it a great application for anything that needs to be lightweight, but also strong. Um, and that's why you see it used a lot in aerospace applications. Um, and so for, for your commercial aerospace applications, you know, the, the most popular one being the, the new Boeing 787, um, the engineers love it uh, for it, its light, lightweight, um, but that also um, has an impact to all of us because the lighter the plane is, uh, the more, the further it can fly on less fuel um, and, and saving fuel consumption, uh, something that helps the environment, which is something that anybody can appreciate. <laughs>